Well, greetings, everybody. Welcome once again to the Rec Poker Podcast. Our official sponsor, as always, is Running Aces Racetrack Casino and Hotel, and we are also sponsored by Learn Pro Poker and Website Amp. This is episode 194, and today we have a chance to chat with Matt Hunt, uh, which we're super excited about. But let's first introduce our panel. My name is Steve Fredlin. I am at Rec Poker Steve in our Poker Stars home game, reminding you what David Hayano said. Poker is not a game in which the meek inherit the earth. Uh, I am Andrew Feist. I am dealer 412 in our Poker Stars home game. Um, kind of a throwback to last week uh, with Blake Bond. I need someone to teach me how to fold. <laughs> and, and I'm Chris Jones, 5x5 five five, uh, in the Poker Stars home game, 5b5 on Twitter. And now that I've finally made my first Royal Flush, my next elusive poker dream is to capture the all-impossible triple check raise. <laughs> <laughs> well, my name is Jim Reed. I'm Bluffsterini in the home games. And uh, it's not just about improving your A game. If you can improve your B game and just learn to walk away when you're playing your C game, that's actually better than improving your A games. There's lots of ways to get better as a player. And I'm John Somsky, Poker Geek MN everywhere else. And uh, I just want to remind everyone to be very careful when drawing to an inside straight. <laughs> and I'm Rob Wash. I'm Ratman50 on Twitter and on the Poker Stars home game. And as Tommy Angelo said, there's only two positions in during a poker hand, last and not last. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Well, thanks, everybody. Those are the voices that you all know and love every week. Uh, and just a reminder that Rec Poker is way more than a podcast. We are a vibrant and encouraging poker learning community. Uh, we learn the game, we have a blast, we celebrate each other's victories, and we build relationships along the way. So if that sounds appealing to you, jump into the community. You can join for free at rec.poker. Uh, if you want more of the content, there are some premium options, and you can use the code RecPoker to get a get uh, 10 bucks off your first payment. Uh, so do that. So with all of that, uh, let's bring in Matt Hunt. Matt is a professional poker player and coach from the UK, currently living in Las Vegas, where it's nice and cool. Uh, he has a bachelor's degree in French and a master's degree in transnational studies, both from the University of Southampton in the UK. As a poker coach, he specializes in MTT math and ICM concepts, short stack play, exploration of the no limit game tree, through GTO solver research and the cognitive role of language in poker decision-making. That's a lot of things to specialize in. Uh, he also <laughs> serves as a mental game and language analyst for the poker detox coaching and staking program, and has been a member of the MTT coaching roster at tournament poker edge since 2013. So with that, welcome Mr. Hunt. Thank you. I'm, uh, I'm glad to be here. I have to update that resume. I don't know where you got that from, but uh, there's a couple. There's a couple of small things I have to update on there. But I'll uh, well, up, go I'll, ahead. I'll no, deal with from, those some other time. That is from the Solve for Why. I should have run it past you. It's oh, from your yeah. Solve for well, Why I, site. Then I, I need to let Berkey know that that needs to be updated. I don't know why the Solve for Why resume for me has me listed as being on the roster for another coaching site I, since 2013. I almost asked um, that. I'm like, why would they put that out there? I haven't been with Tournament Poker Edge since I've been with Solve for Why, but I don't know. I got, I don't know why that says that. Well, I think you know. You know well, first of all, we we all know that Berkey's not very smart, so we've kind of got that <laughs> deal already. <laughs> so we'll we'll do quality control on behalf of Matt Berkey. Uh, I'll I'll actually let him know about that. How's that? But anyway, yeah, so sure. so anything else from the from the. Uh, imposter resume that we should let people know about? No, most, most of that was, uh, most of that was accurate. Although, um, I'm not, I'm not working so much with poker detox anymore either, but I have, those are all things that I have done at some point in the last few years. You know, I've, uh, I've jumped around a lot. And you are from the UK. Is that correct? I am. Yeah, that is, that is true. Yeah. My this is washing out a little bit. This is Matthew Hunt. Are we correct? We actually have Matthew <laughs> Hunt is, too. Yeah. Yeah, okay. <laughs> you do have the right guy. Yeah. I, uh, my accent's washing out a little bit. I've been here in the U S for about three, almost three and a half years now. So, um, I'm, I'm kind of, uh, I don't know when I go to the UK or when I speak to people from the UK, they say I sound American. When I come back here, they say I sound British. So I don't know where I am right now. <laughs> man without a country well uh we're, we're glad that you're on the show i guess the only piece we were, we were able to validate before the show started was that you're in las vegas right now that's uh, true in, yes enjoying not being in the heat 
Yeah, I'm, I'm staying indoors pretty much even more than most people are right now. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's hot. It's very hot. Uh, it's the desert and it's not exactly my natural environment being from the UK. So it's, uh, it's rough when you don't have 50 MTTs to play in the summer during the world series. So it's been a, it's been an odd couple months, but, uh, I'm surviving and we're only about a month or so away from it starting to cool down in Vegas. So I should be pretty happy once that happens. So what was your sort of mix between live and online tournaments before all of this? Um, before all of this, well, before I moved to the U S I was almost exclusively online. I played a little bits live, like when I came to Vegas in the summers and, and at other times, just a, a couple of times here and there, but I was mostly online. But then when I, you know, when I settled down here in Vegas, I kind of started splitting maybe uh, there were times where it was like, well, during the world series, it would just be like 90% mm. live. You just grind live and then play online in the evenings or something. If you bust, um, and, but then there's been other times where it's been maybe three quarters online and a little bit live, but then there's also been, you know, a couple of three month stretches where I might just really feel like going and playing live a bunch, you know, so it, it, it tends to, tends to switch around, but obviously last few months been pretty much online only. But making that transition obviously was not difficult because of that, because of your background playing online. Yeah. 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 I think, uh, I, I was quite lucky in, in, um, you know, having, having had enough experience online that I, you know, I was just comfortable hopping back into it. And it, it kind of felt like, you know, five years ago, grinding on poker stars or wherever else, you know? Well, as a, as a fully emerged gray beard, I was disturbed by this one question that I have for you, which was, uh, you started out playing poker in college home games in 2009. That's true. Okay. That's true, yeah. <laughs> 2009 in college. Wait a second, Rob, we got to do something about this, but yeah, talk, talk about, <laughs> talk about how you got into poker in the first place. Sure. Yeah. Um, well, 2009 was towards the end of my time in college. I, I, uh, I was doing a four year degree and in the last year of it, um, some friends and I just basically set up a regular Friday night poker game. I think the first time we did it was like new year's day, 2009 or something like that. And, uh, before, by the time like three months had gone by, we were, it wasn't just a regular Friday night game anymore. It was like four nights a week. We were just doing this, you know? Um, and then, uh, what happened was because, because of the way it worked out with the scheduling of, how my college, like my four year plan or my four year degree worked out compared to other people that I knew a lot of the guys that were in that home game, uh, basically graduated and just moved away. So we didn't really have enough people to play that home game anymore after a certain point. So I, I, I still wanted to play some poker. So I started playing online and, um, before long I was starting to think, Oh man, I, I'm actually getting kind of okay at this. And I really enjoy it. And maybe I could actually do this for a living one day. So that's kind of how it happened. Well, so, so the degrees were for French and transnational studies, yeah. but that wasn't, there wasn't so much of a pull there that, uh, you know, playing poker wasn't, it wasn't too difficult of a choice. Uh, it wasn't, I mean, honestly, um, if I could go back, um, if I could go back and make choices again, I would either, I would either do a different degree or I would not go to college at all. Um, mm. cause I think that, I, I really value the experiences that I had, uh, during, during my college years. I, I met a lot of great people. I had the opportunity to, to live and work abroad. I learned to speak another language, which is an experience that I think is, you know, it's transformative for anyone who does that. Um, but at the same time, I came out of college thinking, what the hell am I going to do with this degree? <laughs> because particularly in the UK, I mean, we're not, we're not in the EU anymore for, whatever good that might apparently do us. But back in the, back at the time when I graduated college, um, you know, I, I was coming out of college with uh, a degree in French, being able to speak two languages, but a company that might be looking to hire at that point could go and hire a guy from the Netherlands who speaks four languages fluently mm -hmm. or a guy from, you know, somewhere else that speaks three languages or, you know, three fluent and two partially. And it's like me just being, you know, not bilingual, but fluent in another language wasn't really enough to actually give me any kind of competitive edge in the job market. So that was kind of how I ended up studying for another year. Really. I got to a point where I was like, I don't really know what I'm going to do with this degree. Um, so I decided to do my, my masters. I, uh, I stuck around for another year and that honestly, that was the year in which I started kind of partially paying the bills through poker. And that was the point where I was like, well, I could try to make these humanities degrees into something professional, or I could just play poker, which would probably be more fun and I'd probably make more money. So let's do that. That's basically how it happened. So, so transnational studies, give us a little bit of a background in that. Yeah. 
Well, at the time when I did that, uh, it was my, my university was the only one in the UK that was offering that course. And it was only the second year that they had run it. So right after I graduated, <clears throat> excuse me, I was able to say I'm one of only like 20 people on the planet that has this degree. But now it's growing quite a bit as a, as a field. And essentially what it is, is it's a bit, it's like part sociology, part linguistics. It's the study of mm -hmm. migration, um, migration language, uh, social identity, nationalism, things like that. A lot of different concepts kind of rolled up into one umbrella, but it's uh, the transnational element is to do with the, the idea of movement across countries, you know, and as someone who had spent time abroad as part of my first degree and uh, someone who'd always had an interest in living a lot of living in a lot of different places and spending time around the world, I, uh, I gravitated towards that. It was really interesting. Um, but ultimately I, uh, I came out of that kind of the same way I came out of my undergrad thinking like, this is great. And it was really interesting, but like, what the hell am I going to do with this? You know? <laughs> and, um, that's how poker happened, I suppose. Yeah. I'm super curious. I mean, I, I could talk, these guys know, like if I could talk for hours about, about anything, I'm so curious, but like, uh, I'm so interested, like, is there anything that kind of sticks with you from before we transition into poker that, that sticks with you from those studies that you're like, okay, this is helping me kind of understand the world today or, you know, whether it's the pandemic or whether it's politics or just, just anything. Is there, is there anything that kind of comes out of there where you're like, okay, I have sort of some of these insights that would actually be helpful for people to know that maybe most of the population doesn't know. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the, the, probably the biggest thing, or if like, if someone were to ask me, what's the one thing you want to transmit to people? It's, uh, the idea that language is a language is a framework that we created for a practical purpose. Language is a, a framework that we created to, to allow us to communicate a concept to somebody else. So something's in our head and we want to try to get it into somebody else's head in a way that we can, you know, mutually understand what it is. And when you understand that that's how it works, you understand that every concept that we talk about, every single word in every single language that's ever been created existed purely as a means to, to make that happen. And that these words can then be, these meanings can change over time because the, the concepts that are in everybody's minds when they say these words or when they hear these words, they change. And when you start to understand that language changes over time, language usage changes over time, and also that language can be used to to do a number of different things it can be used to communicate a concept more effectively and make teaching better it can be used to uh manipulate people into into doing things that that they shouldn't be doing it can be used in any number of different ways um but once you start to once you see that language itself is a tool that humans developed or is a it's a means to an end of communicating a concept you, it kind of opens doorways for you to be able to say, okay, well, what other ways do I have that can communicate concepts? I can communicate through visual means. I can communicate through any kinds of other um, you know, forms that, that are accessible to me. And language is just one of those things that I can use in conjunction with other things to, to, to get a message across or to relate to people, to build relationships, to, uh, you know, for any number of, of different reasons. And I, I think that the, I think there's a strong link between people who have a high level of emotional intelligence and people who have a high level of understanding of how to use language effectively. And I think that is one of the things that I, I got out of, out of spending four or five years studying this stuff in college is I met a lot of people who had really high levels of emotional intelligence and really were good people to be around because you could really have a conversation with them that felt meaningful. And, uh, and I think that there was a certain small demographic of people that studies languages in, in college that maybe doesn't, um, it's not easy to define the kind of stereotype of who that might be. You know, people have a stereotype of engineers or, you know, computer science guys or whatever, and there's no real stereotype for linguists, but, um, the specific category of people that I met, uh, studying, um, you know, great people. And, uh, and I, like I say, I think that understanding language had a, a big impact on, on me as a person and, and just the way I perceive the world around me. Matt, I wanted to jump in there and kind of ask a little bit of uh, sure. follow up on that. Um, the, 
you know, as you're talking about languages, this this way to like convey ideas and like it's 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 a the, fundamentally that's what it's all about. Mm -hmm. um, it's both interesting to me that you have sort of all, you know all, all this humanities background, very little. I mean, maybe in other parts of your study, you were studying mathematical concepts and math, mm -hmm. sort of like those kinds of things. But one of the things that I have just valued so much about some of your work, um, coaching in Sulphur Y, and I I, I feel like you have. Um, helped me understand some of the tougher mathematical concepts in poker um, really well. And it's really surprising to me that you don't have that sort of math background. So I'm wondering if you can talk about, was it that sort of background in linguistics that's helped you sort of convey some of those concepts? And how did you um, sort of teach yourself about some of these tougher, you know, some of the ICM theory kind of like mm -hmm. tough concepts in poker? How did you uh, build up a knowledge base on, uh, around all those topics? Sure. Um, I, I, first of all, I'm, I'm grateful that you, uh, you like my work. That's awesome. Thank you. Um, but I think, uh, yeah, there's a complete contrast between the way I I think I'm perceived as a coach or the, the specialization that I tend to take as a coach versus the, the background that I have. But I, I think that it's the background that I have that allows me to actually be effective at doing what I do as a coach, because for, for the most part, uh, what I focus on is, is recognizing that these concepts that are mathematical in nature are very difficult for someone to like pass out and really understand on a deep level. Um, because humans aren't built for math, you know, we're not, we're not good at math generally. And so the, uh, the best way that we can understand these is if we can put them in some kind of a, a framing that, um, you know, that allows us to express it in a fairly simple way that makes it intelligible in terms that aren't mathematical. So whether that's graphically or whether it's in terms of words, you know, you, you could, you could show somebody the numbers that prove a correlation between two things, or you can tell them, when X goes up, Y goes down or something like that. And immediately, whether it's through a visual expression of something going up and something going down, or whether it's through just the phrase that you use, the words that you use, people tend to understand things more easily that way. And so I think that in terms of my own understanding of the concepts, I don't think my background helped me at all. It was probably a hindrance because it took me a while to, it probably, it took me a while to learn a lot of this stuff myself. But I think in communicating it to other people, I think it was not only the fact that I understood that communication is about using the right language and framing things in the right terms, but um, also just uh, the fact that I had some teaching experience as well. And I had done this, you know, I've been in a classroom teaching uh, during my year abroad. I, I taught in a, in a college or uh, in, a, in a school in, uh, in France. And, um, you know, I've worked, I've been in a classroom in front of 20 French teenagers where they, they don't speak English. I don't, my, my French was good at that point, but not like fantastic. Um, and I, and I'd been told like, don't let them know that you actually speak French. <laughs> you know, the, the teachers that I was working with were like, they need to practice their English. So you should just speak English with them. But then I'm up in front of the classroom and, and I have to try to communicate certain things. And I'm, I'm not supposed to use one language, but I kind of can. But then if I do, there's a whole host of other considerations. And you know, that kind of, that kind of weird situation that you're never put in usually, um, you know, once you've done something like that, trying to figure out how to teach somebody what range they should three bet in a certain spot, is kind of easy, you know, after a while. <laughs> I, I love that question, Chris. That is just a phenomenal question. And I think one of the things I wanted to ask you about, Matt, anyway, was, was your ability to teach because it, it really does feel like you're a gifted teacher. We're not just saying that because you. you're on the show. And, and I'm Thank curious, you, you know, you, you, it seems to me, it's so obvious that you spend so much time preparing your, your presentations in a way that people can understand some of the things that you talked about, whether it's visually or whatever. And I'm curious if that's actually true or if because of your background or your just ability to teach, if that's just sort of a natural, you just kind of get it, you know, you hear something, you figure it out, and then you're just able to communicate it in a, in a really a relevant way. Or if you actually do spend the time that I'm assuming you spend really getting it to the point where people can understand it clearly. I think it's a bit of both. I think my, my ability to the, the fact that I'm quite good at just delivering something like speaking that just comes from experience of being in a classroom. And I've also like, I, I'm kind of cheating in a way as well, because I, I did some volunteer work that involved public speaking training and things like that. So I've had, I've had training in that area and that's why I can kind of communicate in terms of how I actually talk, but the work that goes into 
content in terms of slides and doing solves and things like that. That's a lot of work. I, I for sure put a lot of work in there. Um, and uh, I think that there might be some other people who maybe don't do as much of the front end, but then they, they'll rehearse a coaching session or they'll plan a session out uh, in great detail. I'm not necessarily one for that so much, but if I, if you give me, if you give me a set of slides that like with this information on it, or if I put together a set of slides, then I can do, I can deliver a session pretty easily off those slides, just kind of based on experience and based on, uh, I, I think a sensitivity to kind of the flow of how a class is going and things like that. So it's, it's a little bit of both, I guess. Well, it sounds great. So Chris Jones puts together all of our monthly seminars and our other content, and he's a genius. And he, but you know, he puts more time in that people really don't realize how much time he puts in. But I think maybe Chris for for September, we just give Matt the slides and just have him deliver it. I mean, it seems like a pretty. Easy that sounds thing. great. I, it would be it would be it would be ten thousand times better. I'm sure. No. So that would be awesome. We'll miss out on the conversation though in the process. But um, related to that, I'm I'm curious if you have any sort of a teaching that you're just like ultra proud of. And I, I don't like to put people in these spots where this false humility thing, whatever, but like, you know, one of the, one of the teachings, I'll set this up a little bit while you think about that, because one of the teachings that you have, I continue to go back to, and I don't consume as much content as people probably think I do. Uh, but there's a few of these teachings that different people have had that I'm just like, I'm addicted to. Uh, I'm addicted to your teaching on the, the stage of the straight stages of MTT tournaments. Mm. Uh, you know, those six stages and the whole volatility ICM and future skill edge, you know, what should be focused on or what should be prioritized or what should be emphasized or what should you pay attention to at each stage. And I just found that that transforms uh, uh, people when I'm able to start communicating some of those principles that you taught there. So I'm addicted to that teaching, uh, but I'm curious if you have, you know, any other ones that you're just like this, this one, I'm just super proud of. Well, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that one. Cause that's, that's the one for me that, uh, I think that was the first time I really felt like I was, I was breaking new ground in terms of content, like rather than just conveying a concept, I was inventing a concept or inventing a, a, a mental model for how to look at something. Um, that, uh, I think the, uh, certainly makes that, that piece of content. I think one of the ones that I, I was very pleased with how it came out, uh, on top of that, I know, I think that, um, I want to mention also the the work that we do at SoftWay in the academy, the the in person work that we do, the classroom work that we do. I um, I was a big part of developing our first tournament academy that we did. I think we did that back in 2018, and we've done a few of them since then. Obviously, we haven't done one this year because of uh, COVID, but um, I I'm really proud of that as well because I think we we put together a three day experience that. Um, I think does incorporate a lot of those ideas from that video series. And, uh, I, I think we've had, I'm trying to think of exactly how much it's been, but I would say the, the scores or the, the, the caches that we've had from attendees at our MTT Academy is probably pushing something like 300 K now since that first, um, MTT Academy, we had one player come to the MTT Academy and then make a 92 K score a week later. Um, you know, we, uh, yeah, we've had, we've had a lot of good outcomes and, uh, I'm really proud of, uh, everything that we do at the Academy too. So I definitely want to mention that. Awesome. I know Andrew has a question, but I just noticed in the chat, I'm getting ripped on here because, uh, <laughs> John Somsky said who had 11 minutes until Steve mentioned tournament stages. <laughs> they're, they're betting the over under on how long till I mentioned that. So wow. they, they know I love it. They know I love that, but great stuff. Uh, Andrew. Well, I, uh, I appreciate uh, the, the love guys. I, uh, I like that you guys are as into my content as that. We're huge fans. If he didn't bring it up, I was just about to, cause I was just going to say when you were talking about your language, uh, you know, having a background in language and the concepts from your head into mine, essentially, uh, mm. it doesn't get any better than the anatomy of, of, the, of an MTT. That was phenomenal work. Love it. Thank you. Guys. Um, I like, I'm glad going kind of a little bit different. You've been with the mental health and mental game of everything. You've been sure. posting a lot of your stuff on Twitter and, and mm -hmm. as far as community aspect, that's what we're all about. And so my, yeah. my question I guess would be is what kind of, uh, what made your decision to start sharing your mental health and stuff on with Twitter and trying to, you know, bring the community aspect into it and, and what, what made your decision on that? Yeah. Um, that's a good question. I think ultimately, um, I don't think there was a specific time where I, I said to myself, like, I'm going to start sharing more of myself. I think it's more just you, 
it might, it might be a byproduct of the last few months, the way that we've all been kind of isolated to, to a certain degree. And we've all been kind of wanting a bit more of a, a connection with, with the people around us. And for, you know, for better or worse, sometimes Twitter is one of the few ways we have available to, to get a connection with people very rapidly like that. Um, it might've been just that I was kind of feeling like I wanted to be more authentic and, uh, and start to kind of communicate to people what my experience had, had been like, uh, in recent, you know, recent weeks or recent months. It's also, I think part of, uh, me wanting to make sure that I'm not, um, limiting myself in terms of the, the ways in which I, I express myself publicly, you know, cause I think that, uh, it's easy on Twitter to just get wrapped up in like, you, you do kind of, you kind of tweet about, I don't know, I'll tweet about something poker related or some, some poker feud that's going on, or, you know, you tweet about something to do with politics, or I, I, tw I tweet my thoughts about some, you know, soccer game that I just watched or something like that. And, um, and then I guess I, at a certain point, I just kind of looked and said, well, you know, I have, I have people that are following me. And if I can do something that I think is going to resonate with people, then, um, you know, I, I feel like I have some kind of a responsibility to like, hopefully do something that can, can make people feel better or can make people feel like there's some element that of, of my experience that they can relate to, you know? Um, and I think that, yeah, I, I, to be honest, I think that if COVID hadn't happened, I probably wouldn't have come to this point of feeling like I, I, I needed that you know, I needed to like be connecting out there with people. Um, so it may just be a byproduct of that, but I'm, I'm glad I started it because I've certainly gotten a lot of positive response and I certainly don't plan to, to stop anytime soon. So, um, it's been, uh, certainly, uh, I think a good decision. No, oh, yeah. And just kind of a follow-up with that. I, I, I applaud you for doing that because that would be something that I, I can imagine would be very tough, but, uh, yeah, just the, the, the ability for you to kind of reach out and, and, let other people know that they're not the only one going through tough stuff. That's I, I applaud you on that for that. that Thank there. you. I appreciate it. I'm glad, uh, I'm glad people are paying some kind of attention, you know, cause I, I guess that it's easy when you put something out there to, to think that every, someone, everyone might just ignore it, you know? Um, and it's been really gratifying to me to, to get some, some messages of support and messages of like, Hey, I, you don't really know me, but if you need to talk to somebody, you know, feel free, like all kinds of different messages I've gotten from people. And a lot of them people, I, I don't know at all. So it's, uh, it's really great to, to have gotten that kind of response. So, um, yeah, I hope, uh, I hope people are, are benefiting in some way from it. John, did you have anything you want to add? Yeah. Kind of on a, on a different tack. Um, I was just curious, given that you're, uh, an online tournament specialist, how yes. does someone that is an online tournament specialist who is natively part of the UK and can play online poker very easily from there, decide to move to the United States, which is one of the worst places to play online poker. It is. Uh, it probably won't surprise you to, uh, to hear that I moved for love rather than for money or for my career. <laughs> uh, my wife is American. Um, we met in, uh, we met online actually in, uh, 2014 and, uh, we lived together in the UK for a bit. We traveled around, um, from country to country for a couple of years. We spent some time around Europe. We spent some time in Mexico. We spent time here, Canada. And eventually we, we reached a point where, uh, traveling was exhausting and we needed to make a decision about, uh, whether to apply for a visa for her to come to the UK or for me to come to the U S and, um, you know, outside of just the, the logistics of it, the logistics of it would have been way harder to get her into the UK than it would have been to get me into here. But, uh, outside of that, like we both kind of agreed that Vegas would be a good place to settle. Um, you know, there's a lot of poker. Um, she used to come here as a kid with her family. So she likes it here. Um, you know, she's from California originally. So we're close to close to home for her. Uh, there's just a lot of benefits for us, uh, being here and, yeah. Um, it, it sucked to leave online poker behind or to leave, you know, the major sites behind, but, um, I, there's obviously still a ton of poker here and, and I would have, I would have been coming here every summer anyway for the world series. So it, uh, it really isn't too much of a trade off for me to live here. And I'm, I'm grateful that I, you know, I get to build a life here with my wife and, uh, I get to, I guess a year from now, a, a year or so from now, I will, uh, be able to apply for citizenship, which is exciting. 
Excellent. That actually makes a lot more sense than coming here for poker. Yes. <laughs> yeah. If it was, if I was going somewhere for poker, I, I don't know where I'd go, but I'd go to some country that, you know, can still play on poker stars, but is really cheap. So I don't know, Bulgaria or somewhere, but I, I would never really think of that to be honest ever since I met my wife. So we'll, uh, we'll stay in the U S for now. I've heard Costa Rica is popular for that. Uh, for it's me, popular it would be... for poker players. Yeah. But I, um, the weather might be a little too hot for me. I might have to stay mm. in Europe. Yep. I'm, I'm much okay. more comfortable with cold. I'd rather put a sweater on than uh, try and find a fan or a basin of uh, <laughs> ice water. Right. Um, I, I had a question following up because just earlier you were talking about how this global pandemic kind of changed the way that you were interacting with people. And we sure. really noticed that at rec poker. Um, mm -hmm. We, we're still kind of putting our home games together and we were kind of figuring out the best way to get members to communicate and engage with each other. Mm -hmm. And um, one thing that we noticed right away was that people wanted to engage, uh, to be dealing with other people, that there was a void there. And that was when we started actually doing our home games every night as opposed yeah. to just uh, twice mm -hmm. a month. And that was hugely popular. And uh, cool. uh, the, the home games have been fantastic. Um, have you noticed, especially as, as a teacher, uh, we really pride ourselves on kind of learning in community, sharing our lessons, sharing our pain and learning from it together. Sure, um, yeah. ha have you noticed, uh, a difference in the way that people are learning or that people are kind of adapting in their learning process to this new reality as well? To a degree, I think, um, what, I guess what I've kind of noticed is, um, I think there's, people are kind of in two categories. I think there's certain people that I, I come into contact with through Soul for Y who um, they, because they can't play much poker right now, um, they're just diving into learning. They're just like, when the, when the live games come back, I'm just going to be a better player. Right. And there's another category of people who are like, uh, maybe this is probably the category of people whose lives have been maybe impacted a bit more by the pandemic and maybe they're, they have work stuff to sort out or something like that. But there's another category of people who are like, I'm just going to leave poker alone for like six months. Cause I can't, I can't think about it right now. You know, I have too much on my mind. Um, and I totally get that as well. So I think there's, there's kind of been a couple of different, um, schools of, of thought, I suppose in that regard. But I think a lot of, a lot of guys in the self Y and, and women, of course, in the self Y community, I think have, have been very active in our, in our Slack group and things like that. So there's been a lot of conversations going on. There's been a lot of, um, you know, a lot of people kind of playing online and, and experimenting with online uh, for the first time sometimes in, in certain cases. So I think there's, there's a, a growth in um, the level of interest that like some people who were kind of maybe looking for something to, to fill the void that COVID created have some people have chosen poker. Um, and obviously you guys are doing a great job providing a, a platform for that kind of community aspect with, with nightly home games. That's great. Um, but I think also some people have like maybe the people that have already maybe uh, gotten a certain community sense from, from elsewhere have kind of like pulled back a little bit. I think I've sensed, I, I have, I've had some of my own students uh, say like, just put me on hold for like four months or whatever, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, and I, like I say, I totally get it. So it's a, uh, it's situation, I suppose, for each person. Yeah. And everyone has their own way of keeping a hand in it. Like I'm sure people are still listening mm -hmm. to podcasts and, you know, watching oh, sure, yeah. videos and that kind of stuff, keeping, mm -hmm. keeping fresh. Um, I can't turn down a segue like that though. Um, a lot of our members are also used to playing live and now they're playing online for sure. the first time. Do you have any tips or, or ways that you might adjust your play if you're used to playing live and now you're trying to go get online and, uh, crush it online? Um, it's an interesting, uh, interesting question. Cause I think, there's, there's, so, there's so many elements to it that it, it's hard to, to transmit it in a short space of time. But the, I think if I could pinpoint one thing, it would be, it would probably be that I, I found, I find that people who play live more than online tend to, to get very into trying to like guess their opponent's exact thought process to like figure out exactly what this guy is thinking right now, because you're usually you're opposite the guy and you can kind of get a bit of a, a vibe from them of what they might be thinking. But when you try to do that online, the problem is there's a billion different things that could be actually going on behind the screen that might actually lead this person to do a certain thing. And your intuition as to 
why they're doing a certain thing. Like, oh, this guy's just trying to mess with me. Like he's just rebetting me because he, because he thinks screw this guy, you know, like that intuition is so much more likely to let you down online than it is live. Um, <laughs> you guys are all like pointing each other and raising, raising hands. <laughs> I'm like, raising my hand. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's funny. Um, but yeah, the, uh, I think that, that, that desire to, to try to guess what the other guy is thinking, you kind of have to like put that aside when you're playing online and just really focus on like the fundamentals and the, the strategic aspects of the spot, um, more so than trying to, trying to mess with a specific player or target a specific guy that you think is a fish or something like that. Cause you just don't have a lot of info. So I want to, I want to transition a little bit here to, to talk a, bit, a little bit more about the mental health side of things, sure. but I'm curious, yeah. you know, I, I love this question about, you know, is poker still fun for you? Like, so, you know, you've been doing this for a long time. You're still very young, but you've been doing it for a long time. And now you've built a career out of it. So you're, you're playing, you're learning, you're teaching, you're doing all sorts of things. Um, is it, is it still fun or is it sort of like, well, no, this is the course I took. This is my job. This is the business I'm in. Talk a little bit about that. I think that, uh, I think it varies, honestly. I think it's, it's kind of like a lot of things in that once you, once you, if you're really passionate about something and then you start to kind of see behind the curtain in a way, like you, mm -hmm. you, once you see the things that go into making it happen and you see the inner workings of the industry, um, there are certain aspects of it, which aren't as fun or as appealing as they used to be, but there's also certain aspects of it that really connect on a deep level with why you got into it in the first place. And those are the parts that will never not be fun. You know, so for me, walking into the Rio to play day one of the main event will never not be fun. I will do that every time I can for the rest of my life because that will never not be fun for me. And it's the same for any real, any big tournament. But at the same time, sitting down to play online and play a $50 rebuy might not be anywhere near as interesting for me now as it was before. And it's nothing to do with the amount of money that might be at stake because I don't have substantially more money now than I did at any earlier period of my career. It's not that I've moved up in stakes and it's less exciting for me because there's less money at stake. It's simply because it just feels more familiar and it's, it's hard for something to feel familiar and exciting at the same time. And so, um, I think it's when it comes down to the fun parts, it's the stuff that it's either the stuff that you don't get to do very often, like big tournaments, big events, you know, big final tables, or it's the stuff that's new. So like if I decide to go play a game, I haven't played before. Like if I sit down and play some PLO or some triple draw or something like that, and I'm experimenting and I'm just kind of playing around with it instead of just like, okay, this is my day job. I'm just going to go and play my best in this tournament and see how it goes, you know? So there's, there's still fun parts and there's, there's familiar parts, but I suppose that's probably the same with everything. Uh, I love that. I mean, you, you talk about that. I mean, I've been involved in a lot of nonprofit work and it's kind of that thing too. Like it's super exciting. It's fun to get into. Then you turn back the curtain and you're like, mm, yeah. you know, there's some <laughs> stuff that's not as exciting. So right. maybe that's a segue. Just quick mention your, the nonprofit work that you are involved with. If you want to give anything a plug sure. or, or talk a little bit about that. Um, truthfully, it's not something that I'm involved with now. It was more in the sure. past. So basically in my latter years in college, I volunteered with an organization called ISEC, which, um, it's the, the world's largest purely student run organization. Um, and what it does is it's, it's uh, an organization focused on, uh, leadership development uh, and training for, for young people in all kinds of areas, professional training and, uh, and skills training, things like that. Um, and they do that through, uh, running an international exchange program. So the, you join up, you're a student and you actually participate in running this exchange program, which mm. provides, um, internships and, uh, teaching positions and things like that for students who are looking to go to another country and experience another culture, things like that. And they, uh, I think by, I don't, I'm not sure what their numbers are like by now, but by the time I left the organization in 2011, they were doing something in the region of like 120,000 uh, exchanges worldwide every year. And we had like 80,000 members or something. I forget what exactly the numbers were, but I, uh, I volunteered in the UK primarily. Um, and I, I ran, I, we, they had, a, they have elections every year for, you know, president and vice president or something of the organization, uh, where you get to go and work full time in London for a year. I ran for president in the UK, didn't get it. Um, ran for vice president in the UK, didn't get it. And then, uh, ended up being one of the vice presidents working in Ireland. Um, so I moved mm -hmm. to Dublin for about eight, nine months, um, working over there to help kind of reestablish 
the organization because it had kind of like uh, the Irish arm had sort of fallen off a little bit and we, they needed the team of people to go in and like build it back up. So um, I did a lot of great work with them. They, they gave me a lot of great training and experiences. Um, I was able to go on my own exchange experience where I went and what did I do? I taught English for two months in a school in Turkey. Um, mm. And uh, that was great. I, uh, I loved the time I spent over there. So uh, I, I had a lot of great opportunities as a product of uh, the time I spent with them. But I suppose by the time I, <laughs> by the time I had done, by, by the time I'd finished my role in Ireland working with them, that was the point where poker was really like calling to me a little bit. You know, that was where I was like, man, I really kind of want to do this poker thing. And so I, uh, you know, I, at that point I wasn't a student anymore anyway. So I, I wasn't eligible to be involved anymore and it just kind of naturally came to a close, but that was the, uh, the work that I was doing in the past. Yeah. Yeah. And as a language specialist, I would think that that's uh, extremely interesting to go to different cultures, but I think for anybody, I mean, the the fact that you're giving anybody cultural experiences, I think those are critical uh, for our life and understanding the world. So uh, hats off to the work that you did there. Uh, I'll turn over to Chris. You had a question. Yeah. I wanted to go back to the, uh, you were talking about, you know, the, kind of the difference between a $50 online tournament and the main event and like that there's some sort of external factors that are kind of like driving that like this there's this excitement and there's this atmosphere and all those kind of things in in place but I kind of I wanted to ask you a little bit about some of those internal drivers and kind of like the learning aspect of the game Mm -hmm. you're somebody who I think we all know and respect your sort of knowledge of solvers and sort of like you know the sort of the the sort of the intricacies of the game and you you've kind of you can at least convey that a lot to us in terms Mm -hmm. of like what that means but I'm curious about what still challenges you or surprises you about the game uh, if anything, and, uh, or do you, is it just, you know, you approach a poker table and there really is rarely a spot that you kind of are, you know, well, I'm going to have to go back to the lab after this is over. Cause I, uh-huh. I don't know what the heck was going on there. Or, or is it, you um, know? I, I think that, uh, when I started out, I was, I was in the camp of, of players who, who looks at poker more as a puzzle to try to figure out like a puzzle to solve or a puzzle to piece together. I, I wasn't in the the camp the camp of like super competitive. I want to beat the other guy kind of players. I was very much in the, trying to be like academic about it and trying to learn about the game and the the puzzle the, the pieces and how they fit together. But I think uh, as time has gone by, I've kind of gotten to a point where I I see it now just as a medium for learning more about people. You know. Um, I kind of just, I find that the game, the game teaches me things. The game, um, you know, kind of gives me insights into how people operate that I probably wouldn't have gotten anywhere else. So I would like, in terms of like, are there spots where, are there spots where I I still, I still find myself in situations where I I look at, I look at it and I'm like, Oh, I, I don't know what the hell I'm supposed to do here. Yeah. I mean, those, those do come up, but it's, it's much less frequent because, what, the more you study, the more you start to realize that situations really do fall into categories and you can kind of equate one as being very similar to another in a lot of cases. But really what it, uh, what surprises me now is, is people and, and how they act and how they behave. And the times where you, the times where you see someone who you think is behaving a certain way, and then they do something you completely don't expect. And you have to try to figure out, you know, where did that come from? Like, why did this guy decide to randomly punt off his stack at this particular time? What, what emotional impulse was it that made him do this or, um, you know, some other aspect related to, let's say, why, why do people from one country tend to play differently to people from another country? You know, that's always been a, like a pet sort of thing of mine that I really do believe is true. Like I really do believe you could statistically prove that people from certain countries play more in a certain way than people from other countries. Um, you can't gather data on it because you can't gather a hand history that includes the locations of the players. No site, no site includes that. But if the data gathering techniques existed, I absolutely believe you could prove, um, let's say that Brazilians play more hands. Um, that's for sure true. Like the VPIP of the average Brazilian player is higher than the VPIP of the average American player. There's no debating that. Um, so, uh, yeah, there's just, there's a lot of things that the game continues to teach me. And, uh, if it, if I ever feel like 
the game has stopped teaching me, then maybe I would end up leaving it behind. But I just don't see how that could ever happen because it's just, you're always dealing with people. And, and for as long as you're always dealing with people, you're still going to keep learning things. And just like, how do you think the science of language and the way language shapes our minds affects that, you know, geographical uh, 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 the, the, the differences there? Like, like, because that, that it can't just be, it can't just be that they're all watching the same pros on TV, I think. I mean, maybe it can. I know. I, I, I think it, uh, I think it affects it a lot. Um, I, I would hypothesize that it's not just a language element, but a cultural element in that in, um, in certain cultures, uh, there's a different significance attached to the idea of risk and gambling and things like that. So, um, you know, certain cultures might prize a quality like being very combative or not backing down, facing aggression more so than other cultures. Um, I'm not sure if I should say which cultures I have in mind. Um, <laughs> I probably shouldn't, uh, but I, I, I have specific, uh, like, I mean, the, the VPIP of Brazilians thing, like that's a very simple one, but I have, I have my own ideas, but, but in, a, in a lot of cases, based on people I've actually spoken to from these countries that have told me about their culture and have told me like, yes, in this country, it's much less socially acceptable to be this way. Or it's like, you're perceived to be weak if you act in this way, you know, or something like that. Like that, there are very specific things that I, that I can attribute. And I can say this cultural tendency that this guy told me about eight years ago when I was drinking in a bar in Russia with him, <laughs> this actually relates to poker, you know? Um, and that's, that's a real thing. Like I spent, I spent a few weeks in Russia and I drank with people who told me things about Russian culture that in particular, I notice those things at the poker table now. Like if I see a Russian flag next to someone, I'm going to be like, all right, this guy probably behaves a certain way. Um, cause I can remember my, you know, my friend Nikolai and my friend Sergey who told me all these things about how Russians act and, and how Russian culture works. And, um, yeah, I think it, it, uh, it's always funny to me and, and fascinating the, the way that poker consistently interacts with the experiences I've had in volunteering and language study and all these other areas that you would think were completely unconnected. Um, so, you know, it, it, uh, it constantly surprises me in that way for sure. Now, I'd like to go back to what you were talking about. Uh, when you first started, you looked at it as a puzzle. Sure. So this yeah. was 2009, right? When you, yeah, 2009 through 2011 or so. Yeah. That was like the first two years when I, I took up the game and I hadn't uh, decided that I wanted to do it for a living yet. So as a puzzle, what resources did you use to uh, expand your knowledge and to gain knowledge? Was it uh, reading in forums? Was it interacting with your home game Bobos or, or what was um, the, At the very, very beginning, it was that uh, a friend of mine that I lived with, who was a friend of mine who was my roommate who used to play in this game, uh, he and I would like, it was like a, a 40 minute walk back from my friend's house who hosted this game. And he and I used to walk back home after the home game every time and talk about all the hands we'd played. And that was my first experience of talking about strategy. And neither of us knew what the hell we were doing. Absolutely. We, we, neither of us had read a poker book. Neither of us had read a forum. We didn't have a clue, but we would talk about poker. And I found it really interesting to talk about strategy. And it, got, it went from there to like, oh, one of us found two plus two. So now some, suddenly we're, we're reading two plus two. We're going back through old posts on two plus two about strategy to find things that people posted in 2006 that were supposedly really important strategy ideas. And then it got to reading books and then it got to training sites. And, you know, come 2012, I was like subscribed to every training site. And I was probably spending like a hundred bucks a month on just every single training site. Um, and then, you know, one of, one of them hired me in 2013. And, um, then it came to the point where making training content was my main source of learning. I got to the point where I, um, I wanted to make content about a certain thing. So I forced myself, like, I need to know this thing really, really well. And the best way to do that was to use software, to use whatever tools I had that could actually prove a certain concept that I was trying to explain to somebody instead of just having me hypothesize and say, I like to three bet in this spot. So you should do that too. You know, I never wanted to be that guy who said, play like me. I just wanted to say, play like this because this is right. 
And that's why I started using software. Oh, it's so good. Well, we're going to, we're going to, this is a two part deal that we're going to do with Matt. So we're going to, we're going to wrap up the first episode, I guess my, my, my final comment on this. And I don't know if you, what you think of these people. I have no idea if you like them or disagree or not, but I would like pay big money to see, like to, to have a, to listen in a conversation between you and Fedor Holtz and Maria Konnikova. Like if the three of you could just get a room and talk, like I would pay big money for that. So just, that's a a huge compliment. You just paid me. I, I very much appreciate that. Um, Fedor is probably one of the smartest guys in poker. Maria is probably one of the smartest people in poker. Um, so yeah, I appreciate that very much. Well, it's, it, there's your million dollar idea. Get you three in a room, record it, and <laughs> and make a whole bunch of money. But um, hey, we'll, if, we'll, if I had <laughs> if I had a way to get myself in a room with those two, I'd already be doing it. <laughs> oh, let's they, do that. Uh, okay. They, uh, the, they have yeah, a rec- higher profile than I do. Rec poker you just took on a charge. <laughs> All right. Let's you just took on a charge. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll, we're going to try to make that happen because, oh, my gosh. But, no, I, I love how you think. I, I love, love you know, it's, 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 it's poker, but it's bigger than poker. And that's what I love about all three of you. It's, it's poker, and it's not just what can you give to the game, what can you take out of the game, but what can you take out of life, what are the insights you're extracting, and then sharing them with the world. Like, this is a huge value to the world. So uh, I'm gonna, we're going to end the first one there uh, with Matt. Uh, but as we end, Matt, why don't you let people know how they can get a hold of you if you're listening going, all right, I need sure. to connect with this guy. Uh, what's the best way to connect with you? Sure. Probably the easiest way is on Twitter. My Twitter handle right now is mental health gaming. So it's M N T A L and H L T H. I didn't have space for the whole thing. Uh, <laughs> and then the, the word gaming at the end, uh, that relates to my new Twitch project, which will, um, possibly going to talk about in part two. I don't know. Um, but yeah, that's probably the best way to, uh, to reach me right now. Um, obviously you can go through solve Y as well. I'm a member of the coaching roster there and uh, would obviously be reachable uh, if you were to contact uh, our Twitter people. I think we have email addresses and things that people can uh, can reach out to if you guys are interested in signing up or in coming to the academy when we get up and running again, all sorts of things like that. So uh, yeah, Twitter or email is probably the best way to go. All right. Well, Matt Hunt, thank you so much. And we're, we're going to chat with you part two for next week, but thank you so much. Fantastic stuff. No problem. Glad to be here. So we're wrapping up uh, episode one here. Uh, we covered a lot of ground there. I know in, in the second episode, we're going to get into more of the mental health stuff. But uh, part one, you know, we talked a lot about um, the Solve for Why stuff and, and his community and learning styles and the nonprofit and challenges in his game and all those kinds of things. What, uh, what stood out uh, from that first part? Well, I love the way he talks about uh, language and how it shapes the way you think. I've always felt that language study is just another branch of philosophy, honestly. It's just studying the way people's brains work and the way that we communicate ideas. And uh, the way that we communicate ideas is the way that we think about things. Hmm. And so it's just another insight into the way that uh, our minds work. So I I can see how that would correlate to an interest in poker and and exploiting opponents and trying to put them in boxes and, and understand their assumptions. That makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, it was perfect. And yeah, the language into the teaching too, because I think that's part of the reason that some of his teachings, and I know Chris covered this too, but that some of his program and some of his, you know, stuff with the solve for why are so good is because he, he can, he understands how, how people communicate and how he understands how, how to get his idea as he put it into somebody else's head very easily or not easily, but very well, I should say. <laughs> yeah. I just wish he wasn't as politically correct. Cause when he was talking about <laughs> how different cultures would handle themselves in a, in a poker environment, you know, how the Russians, the Brazilians, I think he had more to say there or oh, yeah. he, he realizes more than he actually said there. So I was kind of, you know, he's, well, he also, he's very he also, PC. He doesn't want to give away his secrets, right? Like, I <laughs> right. Mean, he, can, he can probably look at all those, like, tags on people in an online game and be like, oh, I, yeah, I know how to play you. Yep. <laughs> yeah. He's saving it for a book maybe someday. Right. right. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, good stuff. Anything else uh, reflecting on that first part, guys? Yeah, good. I thought it was phenomenal. Obviously, phenomenal stuff. Uh, so, so as we as we kind of move into here, uh, just a lot of things going on, you guys. Uh, we're we're sort of scaling back the round robin um, uh, part of it, primarily uh, because we're just we want you to go to the website. There's so much stuff, and we can't possibly talk about it all. We we just can't. Like there's there's so much going on uh, right now. So go to the website, sign up for Twerp. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna grab some of the highlights on some of the things that have happened recently. Uh, that's probably the best we can do. But if you want to know 
what's coming up. Uh, just go there. But I wanted to give like a high level when stuff is happening, just to make sure that you are aware of all the stuff going on. Because you might not be aware of it. You might think, yeah, they got a couple things. No, we got a ton going on. Uh, so Monday nights, uh, we record the podcast, we record the seminars. Uh, and if you're a paid member at rec.poker, you can join in on those. You could actually, these conversations like we just had tonight, you can be sitting there, you can be chatting with us, asking questions, all of that kind of stuff. So uh, you can participate in the recordings on Monday nights. Uh, Tuesday nights, uh, you play the home game, you can hang out on Zoom with us. We call it OPA, online play and hang. So you play the home game, you join the Zoom, anybody can do that. If you're playing the home game, come in on Zoom, open to the public, uh, the event is out there on Poker. Wednesday nights are kind of a big rec poker night. Uh, we alternate the book study and the learning with partners and a monthly strat chat. All that kind of stuff happens on Wednesdays. Every Wednesday, there's one of those things going on. Uh, that's when we also play our monthly Nolem and Hold'em and our mixed tournaments. Uh, we also have a monthly OPA, the online play and hang. Uh, we do that once a month for premium members. So if you're a paid member, we do a special tournament. We do a special Zoom uh, just for the folks that are paying members. Uh, some serious bragging rights on the line there. Thursdays, uh, we're going to be streaming every single Thursday night on twitch.tv slash poker. So one of the Wrecking Crew members is going to be out there. So join the, join the Twitch thing, uh, enter the chat, have a lot of fun with us out there. But every single night, there's a free online home game. We started that during social distancing. The amazing John Somsky set that up. So now we've got a free tournament every single night. Plus, now there's a free cash game every single night. You bust out, go play the cash game. It's all free money. Uh, super fun. And four or five days a week, we're releasing new videos. So there's always something cool going on there. Some of that stuff's public. Some of it's just for our free members. Some of it's just for our paid members, but all the information is out there. So I just wanted to give you a high-level overview uh, on what's going on there. So uh, with that, I'll, I'll open it up. Is there anything going on, guys, that, or that's, that's happened recently that we need to make sure that our people know about? We're transitioning from this new approach. Now, now I've got them all scared God. because we're like, we're trying to <laughs> narrow this down. Now they're all scared. Anything, anything that's kind of happened recently, I know obviously we got the home game stuff. Well, the, the Invitational, the Open Invitational was such a blast this month. Oh we had uh, Matt Matros and Ryan LaPlante both come, and they spent the bulk of the time there just talking to each other about poker strategy and, like, game selection and what they thought about while yeah. they were playing hands. And, like, all the premium members that wanted to be there were in the chat. We were all just asking them questions about poker strategy and stuff. I couldn't believe that. So I'm looking forward to that each and every month. That was insane. It was like yeah. a seminar from Ryan, wasn't yeah. it? Oh my God. It was like yeah. a seminar. It was like un amazing. We asked him to stop by. We thought he'd give us 15, 20 minutes. Hour and a half later, yeah. he's, he's done <laughs> coaching us all. <laughs> and then he also offered everyone in the room a free month at his training yeah. site. Uh, like, I just can't believe the, the support we've gotten from some of these learning with partner partners and some of these other, um, other premier sites out there and these poker pros that are coming to lend their voice to our, uh, our group. It's, it's phenomenal. They want to be part of our community, man. They love community. It's it's they, know, they see how much we love it. They see how much we love poker. Yeah. Jason Sue is still in the forums. You know, we had him on as a guest and he's still in the forums, uh, putting comments out there. So, well, anything else before we get to the home games, anything else guys that people need to know about? All right, Mr. Somsky. Well, this, how about you, man? You got something to say. Oh, of course I do. Uh, so between uh, August 17th and August 23rd, here are the nightly series winners. We have uh, JBox71, John Bachhuber. That's Bachuber. his first. Yeah. Bachuber. His first uh, No Limits nightly series win. Nice. Shamu Star 27140, <laughs> Roger Lamp. Got his second nightly series. Nice, Roger. He, and he, he just, I'm playing in the home game right now. Don't tell anybody. And uh, he just mentioned that he enjoyed the last episode of the podcast. So thanks, Roger. Nice. You can skip the next one, John. Oh, yeah. No one needs to know that Bluff Serini, Jim Reed, got his fifth, an amazing fifth No Limit series win, or nightly series win. I got real lucky in that one. Well, and then the website, Mark, Mark Prashan got his yeah. third nightly series win. Website Mark. Flying Bricks, Sarah Hansen got her fourth nightly series win. Bricks is on a roll. Yeah. I and mean, we're getting a couple of weeks ago we had like it was everyone's first or second win. And tonight we're getting a lot of third and fourth wins. It's nice. uh, pretty amazing. Uh then Mr. D Z Z Z oh, 
Richard Dietz got his first nightly series victory. And Indeed. John Lutze got his, whose real name is also John Lutze, got his second <laughs> nightly series victory. I was at that final table. I was busted out five. John was a short stack and he, he just oh. went on a run, man. Wow. Yeah, he's a very solid player. He, yes. He's on a roll. And great to see Rich getting his, uh, that's his first bronze pin then. He's going to have a bronze pin in the mail one of these Mr. days. Soon. Good for except you, Rich. Except he's a Dodgers fan, but we'll, we'll let that go. Anyway. Yeah, he likes the Raiders too. Him and Binkley are both Raiders fans and <laughs> we're making it work, but you know, we get by. Uh, well, good stuff, Mr. Somsky, as always. Anything else, guys, for the good of the order? All right. So Just learning with partners uh, second and fourth Wednesday of every month. All right. Yeah, let's do it, guys. Get out there. It's too good to pass up. It really is. All right, guys. Well, we'll like with that, go to rec.poker, check everything out. If you have any questions, like if you heard stuff, you know, we just kind of fire hosed it out there. Get a hold of me. I'm, I'm accessible. I'm available. Steve at rec.poker. Uh, sign up for the newsletter. Uh, thank you, Running Aces, Casino Racetrack and Hotel. Thank you, Website Amp, uh, which is owned by the great Mark Bershawn. Give him your business, you guys. He is an, he's amazing. He's, he's on his third website that he's designing for me, and I'm like, I can't get enough of this Dude, if you need a website, website amp, seriously, go check him out. Get a hold of me if you have any trouble finding him. I learn pro pokers also. Uh, thanks to our guests, I'm Matt Hunt. Phenomenal, great stuff. And thanks to our panel, of course, Andrew Feist, Jim Reed, Rob Washam, John Somsky, and Chris Jones. And we'll chat with you next time.